This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you very much for joining us today. I recently had the pleasure and the honor of talking with Anne Allison about her new book, Precarious Japan. This came out in 2013 with Duke University Press. This is both a very moving book and a very important book. What Allison does is she takes us into the transformations in the relationship between work and life, in notions of home, and experiences of the everyday that have followed the fall of Japan from its exceptionally successful post-war nation-state status following the bursting of the economic bubble in 1991. Over the course of the study, she not only brings us into the spaces of social precariousness in contemporary Japan, and these include and range from collective meeting spaces to internet cafes, the homes of youth who are effectively homeless within their homes, and you'll, you'll hear a little bit about that in the ensuing conversation, and many other kinds of space. She also takes us into her experience volunteering after the 311 disaster, which is, again, an exceptionally moving, a very thoughtful, and a very arresting picture of not only the precariousness of life after this disaster, but also the hope that's emerged in Japanese society as a result. So I'll keep this intro short so that we can get right to it. It's, a, it's an extensive interview. Um, and I'll say, I, I hope you have a chance to take a look at the book, to read the book, because it's really transformed the way I think about relationships between labor and life, notions of home, and contemporary Japan um, as a result of reading the book. So I hope you enjoy and thanks for listening. We're here today to talk with Anne Allison about her new book, Precarious Japan. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Anne, and thank you so much for negotiating a pretty dramatic time difference and making time to talk with me about a book I really, really love. So congratulations on the book, and thanks for being here today. Thanks, Carla. I appreciate you being up and ready to do this. Of course. So, Anne, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to anthropological work on Japan? Yeah, thanks. I'm an anthropologist of Japan, and I've been working on Japan for about 30 years. And in anthropology, when I was uh, a student, uh, a young, younger student of anthropology in the 70s at University of Chicago, you know, you would, you would choose the, the place that you wanted to study. And in those days, you never studied your own culture, you always studied uh, a faraway culture. 
And not many anthropologists were doing Japan, but I had taken an intellectual history course of Japan when I was an undergraduate and found it something about the social, the social structure, the social differentiation between classes during uh, what's called the Tokugawa Japan from 1603 to 1868 it was just fascinating to me. And so when I entered grad school, I decided to study Japan without ever having been there. And it's been, it's been quite the ride. Yeah, it's, it's always been interesting. So that's how I got interested in it in the first place. Well, thank you so much. So the book that we're talking about today is called Precarious Japan, and it explores a concept that you call precarity or precariousness. So in order to understand how this fits in with the, with um, your larger research trajectory, let's start by talking a little bit about that concept. What is precarity or precariousness as you're conceptualizing it here? Yeah, thanks. Um, it's a word... The, I mean, lot, I mean, the word precarious is a word that everyone knows. Um, we, you know, we use it to, to indicate something that's, you know, difficult or uncertain or unsettled. But the word precarity uh, was was started by labor activists and theorists, uh, European in Italy, France, in the 1970s to indicate a shift. In capitalism, so a shift away from certain kinds of jobs that were more regular jobs, more permanent jobs, to what they called flexible employment, so contract work or day labor or informal, casual. Those are all kind of stand-ins for precarious work. So it also means work that is precarious from the perspective of an employer. So precarity, as it was originally used by these, uh, again, labor activists um, and the people in labor movements, was a word indicating something about labor. It was really referencing labor. But it also was referencing those economies that had had uh, a period of, of time, I mean, mainly post-war what we call Fortis, post-Fortis economies, that were able to accord fairly regular or permanent jobs to their core working force. So this was Western Europe, the United States, and Japan. Um, so in Japan, and well, I'm sure we'll be talking more about Japan, because um, <laughs> the whole book is about it, um, but this was you know, from the 50s to about the early 90s. The expectation, again, particularly if you were a man, this was far less so if you were a woman, but particularly if you were a man, whether you had graduated from college or even high school, the expectation was that once you entered the workforce, you would have a job, if not for your whole working career, for most of your whole working career. So you would have a long-term job that accorded you bonuses and security and insurance and also status and prestige. And so precarity references um, the either the collapse of that or the weakening of that or the dissolution of that. So precarity also is, um, is, is a loss of a certain kind of expectation, the expectation that you will have a certain kind of job which will provide a certain kind of lifestyle for you. So, um, so the word is kind of interesting because precarity actually is much more uh, 
part of the norm for, in fact, most people around the world, and in fact, for most countries in terms of history. I mean, the, the opportunity to have, to be able to expect and count on a regular job is kind of a privilege. I mean, I'm, I'm in South Africa right now where the unemployment rate is, you know, people say it has different numbers, but some people say it's as much as 40 or 45%. Well, all of those unemployed or underemployed are precarious workers or part of the precariat, the precarious proletariat. And uh, across time, Precarity has been much more the norm than the exception. So the word also is referring to particular economies at a particular moment of time where there was this expectation of work that has now uh, been either forsaken or broken down or uh, unsettled. So that's precarity. So that's the first way that I use it. But then other people who talk about precarity say, well, precarity is not just an economic thing. I mean, it starts with labor, but it slips into other registers. So there are multiple kinds of precarious precarities, and it goes from something that is economic or financial to social precarity, to psychological precarity, to existential precarity. And that's also the way that I use it in the book. How does it feel if you don't have regular employment and you then also feel that you have no recognition in, the, in, in society, you don't have social identity, you don't have enough income to get married in a society where being married and children still is the measure for social citizenship? So, again, it goes from one register and spreads into other octaves. Great. Thank you. Now, how did you come to focus on this particular set of issues within um, your ethnography from what you had been working on? And, and you're quite well published. I mean, you've been working for a long time before this. So what brought you to this as a topic? And how did you decide to do a book-length monograph, that kind of object in particular, around this topic? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've done a lot of other research projects, and the very first project I worked on, which was at the height of what, what is called the bubble economy, so it was in the 80s in Japan, when things were, at least economically, very strong. Japan had global acclaim as you know a leading post-industrial power. And I was, again, I've always been interested in the relationship between production and reproduction on the ground, or kind of material culture, and um, how that gets imagined, or uh, a desire, or even sexuality. So I've always been interested in the relationship between more grounded relations of production and reproduction, and then the imagination, or desire, or fantasy. So my first project was actually on hostess clubs, which are um, places, mainly in the cities, but they're in the countryside too, where um, they're kind of fantasy places, but at the height of the bubble economy, these were places where um, middle and large-sized companies would uh, entertain. They're mainly white-collar workers, so they would take people who were working in a company, or if they were trying to do make a deal with someone who was working in a bank, they would uh, take their workers out on company expense for entertainment. But but I was interested in how business was being conducted in places that were also these fantasy places. And so that's, that was what my whole 
dissertation was about. And that's what my first book was uh, about night work. And then my second book was about pop culture. And it was a little bit of the inverse. If men are out um, being entertained on business expense, I mean, this is also thought of as kind of an extension of the work day. Uh, what are their wives are doing? Well, their wives are at home taking care of the kids. So my second book was How Do Women Take Care of That Domestic Space? And largely in the absence of their husbands, I mean, it was a very uh, female-centric space. Um, and then also, how does that translate into the way that gender and sexuality uh, gets um, played out in popular culture. And that book was called Permitted and, and Prohibited Desires, Mother's Comics and Censorship in Japan. And because I was working on pop culture, I became very interested in the globalization of Japanese pop culture in the way of manga, comic books, and anime, animated uh, video and cartoons, and video games. And Japan became kind of uh, a, a, a huge exporter of what was called J-Cool, um, Japanese-made cool pro products. And I did that field work uh, both in Japan and in the United States on properties, four ways of properties, uh, Power Rangers and Sailor Moon, which was a girl comic of superheroes, and Tamagotchi, which are the virtual um, virtual pets, and then uh, Pokemon. And so that was the third project. And you're right, so Precarious Japan became my fourth project that I started doing oh, about 2006, 2007, after I, I had done these other quite differently pitched uh, projects about economics and capitalism and fantasy and pop culture. Um, and and your question is a great question. What what drove me to find this topic of interest? And as an anthropologist, you you kind of go to the field and you try to figure out what's happening. And that's what we're supposed to do. You go and you might go thinking, oh, I'm going to study stop signs because I'm really interested in stop signs. And you go to a place and they don't even have stop signs. And you realize, well, that, you know, that project's not going to work. Well, it's the same thing with Japan. I started hearing that um, the things, the people felt kind of unsettled. You know, the bubble economy burst in 1991. And, um, and other, there were other kind of national uh, incidents. The serene gas attacks on the Japan on the Tokyo subway system happened in 1995, and that was a shock to the system. There were so-called social pathologies. There was a rise of hikikimori uh, that I write about in this book. Young people who re retreat to a room. Um, and stay there, often in their parents' houses, and they can't socially engage. Um, and uh, can't do productive work or school. Um, in 1998, uh, the suicide rate went up to about 32,000 a year and has stayed high ever since. And I started hearing people use various words. Again, what you're supposed to do as an anthropologist, you read the newspaper and you turn on the television and you hang out with people and you drink sake and you, you ask, like, so how's life? And, and I heard a lot of people saying that they felt uh, 
you know, it was a time of unease, that they didn't feel safe. They didn't feel safe, not in the streets, because Japan is still, in that sense, a very safe place to be, but they didn't feel safe in their skins. They didn't feel sure about their their jobs. Um, Also, a lot of concern in the newspapers about the falling birth rate and the fact that, nonetheless, the population is aging fast. so, so what brought me to this was really um, that, and yeah. Great. Well, thank you. And you're actually um, bringing up in your description of the genesis of the project a lot of the components of the analysis that um, at least some of which we'll get to in, in a lot more depth over the course of our conversation. So great. Thank you very much. So you talked a little bit about the process already of ethnography in general, of what an anthropologist does, work on the ground, drinking sake, talking with people, finding out what's on their minds. And this actually brings us, I think, really nicely into the book itself, into the first chapter, The Pain of Life. Now, the book is full of really arresting stories, and and we'll talk about some of them. It opens with the story of a 52-year-old man who starved to death and was found one month later mummifying already, having died from a lack of food in an apartment he'd lived in for 20 years. You mentioned his diary is found with him, and the last entry was, all I want to eat is a rice ball. Now, this is just the first of many, many stories from the everyday where, as you put it in the book, death stalks daily life. The story sets the stage for the arguments and the narrative to come, which will take us into an ethnography of pain, of struggle, and of hope in modern Japan. So let's start out by st- by talking a little bit about that ethnography. What did it constitute and what did it involve? Now you talk about your ethnography here in the first chapter of the book as a way of entering the pain of life amid precarity, of, as you put it, touching the circumstances, the conditions, the everyday effects and affects of how precarity gets lived. And we'll talk a little bit later about that That. Uh, term touching, because touching is going to be very, very important here. So can you talk about that ethnography? Um, What kind of ethnography was involved in researching this book, and how did you conceptualize the kind of work you were doing in terms of the larger phenomenon that you were exploring? Great question. Um, Yeah, well... Again, just kind of referring back to my first project. I mean, my first project was about a Tokyo hostess club. And I went to a Tokyo hostess club and doing participant observation, I became a hostess and I worked there for four months. And I would, as I poured the men's drinks and lit their cigarettes, I heard how they interacted with one another, and I watched how the mama who owned the club interacted with the clients, and watched how the manager ran the club. And it was very circumscribed to a place that um, defined how I did my field work. I mean, I actually did field work in other places too. I did interviews with various people and with housewives. And, but that site-based way of doing ethnography was also kind of a classical mode for us. That's, that's what a lot of us did. We did it in a village or we did it with a soccer uh, team or we did it in a tea house. Um, and this, to do ethnography on precariousness would seem to be 
absolutely the opposite because in part I'm not the way that I've defined precarity and the, and again listening to how people talk about it it's not a place it's not a space it's not a city it's not a village it's not a factory and um, it was a challenge to try to figure out how do I inhabit the precariousness, which is something that has a material component because a lot of people talked about either not having enough money or being worried that they wouldn't have enough money or being worried that they were going to lose their jobs or they were going to get uh, restructured. But there's also, again, the social component of feeling that they were isolated like the man uh, in the story that you mentioned starts this book. Um, he was... He was on welfare and not a very old man, but he was living, for goodness sakes, in an apartment complex where he had lived for years. So there's also that kind of eeriness of feeling that you're displaced. And I um, I don't think I could have done this project as my first project. It would have been a bit overwhelming. And because I have done a lot of anthropological projects, I think I felt like I could trust my instincts, and I went wherever. I went wherever. I would read stories like that story in the newspaper. I read a story about, uh, you know, a welfare system that was being operated by people who, who volunteered their time, and I tracked it down and made an appointment with a guy who had started the, the service and went to interview him. I found out from him about these kind of drop-in these places that are called like regional living rooms or regional tea rooms and where, where people have converted um, abandoned houses and made them into places where you can just go. You don't have to be a member of anything. You pay a teeny bit of money and you can just hang out. And I went to one in Niigata, two and a half hours away from Tokyo, and hung out there for a while. Somehow I found out about um, stop suicide. Suicide, as I mentioned, has become a real challenge and quite a social problem. And somehow I found out from, from a, a young student that there are events uh, now, I think all over the country, to try to prevent suicide. I mean, I had never heard of such a thing. So I went to a number of these and... Um, and found them incredibly moving. And through that, I met someone who was a member of a performance group called the Kuarimono, the Broken People, where all of them self-identify as being handicapped. I mean, not necessarily physically handicapped, but either socially handicapped or psychologically handicapped. And I went up to, again, Niigata and interviewed six members of the Kawaremono, which was totally fascinating. So it feels a little random or a little rambling or a little chaotic or a little disjointed. But that seemed to be what how precariousness feels as well. It feels rambling. It feels unsettled. It feels up and down. It feels chaotic. So that's how I did it. I kind of tracked stories in the newspaper, stories on the radio, uh, stories that I heard people share with me, um, activities, events, activism. I did a lot with activists. 
who were activating, uh, as you had said, about pain, either activating to try to help people in pain or activating for uh, the precariat. Precariat, as precarious proletariat, was a word that was adopted by one of uh, the activists who I followed and interviewed, Amamia Karim, kind of a wild woman who dresses in goth, very interesting, who was a precariat when she first started working. She had very unstable work, was quite suicidal, was a risk cutter, and then found her voice as an activist and has written many books. And um, so I tracked her and I participated in protests. And so that's that's how I did my ethnography. Thank you. And you also mentioned early on um, in this first chapter of the book, work that you did after 311 and volunteer work. But since there's an entire chapter devoted to that at the end, I'll just mention that now as a way of signaling to listeners that by the end of the book and by the end of the conversation, we'll talk about that aspect of the research um, and really the practice informing the book as well. So So as we move into the second chapter, we move into a chapter that really lays the foundation for understanding the kind of transformation that brought about the emergence of this precarity, of this precarious Japan, which you talk about early in the book as a national disaster. Um, And so this chapter takes us through the transformation of Japan from an incredibly successful post-war nation state to a Japan that has become, as you put it, liquefied in terms of life and work. So I think this is a good entry point into this part of the book. Can you talk a little bit about that change? What were the most important aspects of that transformation that we need to understand to understand the arguments you're making in the book? And in what way is liquefaction or liquefaction um, a metaphor to understand the process that results from this? Thanks, Yeah, well, as everyone knows, Japan was defeated in World War II, 1948, which felt incredibly traumatic. I mean, the the, the country had, uh, people had sacrificed a lot, had had been already in pretty bad shape by the end of the war, and infrastructure was was, um, in shattered, that was shattered. A lot of people had died, a lot of people were poor, and uh, there was kind of national humiliation. Um, Japan had thought it was going to be the next, you know, empire of East Asia, and then um, became occupied, and Japan had never been colonized, Um, and now they were occupied mainly by America between 1945 and, and 1952, and remade, and reinvented, and restored um, its uh, resources incredibly quickly, so that instead of being a military power, of course, it turned to, to being an industrial, post-industrial power, turned its energies to production, and um, and also asked its citizenship to work incredibly hard and be very industrious, in return for which they were promised security and uh, prosperity. And there was a lot of activism and a lot of unrest and a lot of interesting uh, things happening in Japan and in the streets in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. But by the 70s, Japan had become Japan Inc., where, um, where 
almost 90% of Japanese self-identified as middle class, which is interesting because that's not only uh, an indication of the reality of life, but it also is an indication of kind of the ideological um, dimensions of life and, and a certain kind of imagination. I mean, people imagined that Japan had gone from one thing, which had been... Um, you know, defeat during the war, and not not that everyone was in favor of that war, but it felt nationally that that had been pretty awful. To this this kind of rise and restoration of something that nationally also felt most a lot of people felt quite proud of, and for the so called average ordinary. Uh, would-be middle-class or middle-class Japanese, it was a time where you the expectation was that you worked hard, um, and in return for that, you would have, if you were a man, you would have lifetime or lifelong job. If you were a woman, you know, the expectation was still that you should marry. You should marry someone with that lifelong job, and then your identity would be kind of propped up on his or shared by him. And then you'd have these kids, and these kids would also work hard. Everyone was expected to work hard, and it was also an incredibly competitive time and an incredibly capitalistic time. Um, but in return for working hard, you could be assured that you would have a modicum of what people interpreted and evaluated to be a safe life. You know, there wasn't a lot of crime in the streets. You would never have a big house because property was incredibly expensive, but you'd have a, you'd have a house and your own car and a lot of consumer electronics. But I should also say that this model and image of the Japanese dream and the success confident uh, national prosperity itself came with certain kinds of risks and certain kinds of sacrifices, which I think in part already incubated some of the precariousness that we're seeing today. It's not simply that, oh, 1991 came and all of that went down the, the drains because now uh, now there was economic decline and speculation had gotten out of control. And now already in that kind of capitalist dream, as with all capitalist dreams, you know, you do have to keep producing, you have to keep investing, and you have to keep working hard. And again, already there's sacrifices there. And also, not everyone was part of the middle class. And this is this is true of particularly minorities. I mean, Japan still has minorities, Koreans and Ainu and Baraku, who never really had the same kind of access to that middle-class dream. And women. Um, Japan remains a gendered divided or gendered um, unequal uh, society t today. In fact, it has one of the worst records on gender equity of any industrial or post-industrial country in the world. And so this, this whole model that we're talking about that provided Japan with this, um, this, this global acclaim as being a country in the social economy that was very prosperous, I do think we have to understand that it wasn't totally inclusive. There were exclusions and there were biases and there were discriminations. Okay, so saying that, nonetheless, now that that is far less stable, 
people do have a nostalgia for, oh, but at least in the 70s and 80s, we, um, we had security. We were able to have uh, 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 the assurance that if we worked hard, we would be able to keep our jobs and progressively become more wealthy. We could grow. We were, we were an economy that was headed towards growth. And, um, and with that decline, you have, um, you have, for example, the marriage rate. And I don't have statistics in front of me, but young people today are far less likely or willing or able to get married and have children. Um, those people who don't have regular employment are one half as likely to get married because in Japan, only 2% of kids are born outside of wedlock, and everyone assumes that to bring up a child in Japan, you need a lot of money, and people don't want to be poor. I mean, there are plenty of people who are poor, but so there's also this sense that what's going to happen in Japan? I mean, the population has been going down since 2006, and so there's also that fear that Japan is declining all across the board, that its economy is not as strong as it used to be, its um, prospects in terms of its population, the size is going down. Instead of a lot of young people, one out of every four Japanese now is age 65 and above, and that rate is increasing quickly. So by 2035, it's going to be one out of 2.5. And now it has the highest... Um, um, a life expectancy of any country in the world. I just checked again. For women, it is 90 years old. <laughs> and for men, it's 25, which is kind of amazing. Um, and so all of this is contributing to make people feel as if things are not nearly as assured or comfortable or stable at any level, personally, but also socially, also nationally. So it's also a little bit, I don't know if the word ironic is the right word, but you know, Japan still has the third largest economy in the world. And if you go to Tokyo, you go into these beautiful apartments, uh, department stores where prices are incredibly high and there are people buying this merchandise. So even though the poverty rate now is 16%, which is high, and it's higher for children, 20% for children, 21% for for the elderly, and in terms of regular employment, one-third of all workers are irregularly employed, which means they don't have this permanent job and uh, no job security. But one-half of all young people between 18 and 24, and 70% of female workers. So there's also a sense that the future is far less assured. Studies have been shown that if you ask school children, well, what do you think about the future? They say, I think the future is going to be worse than what it is now. And I have no expectation that my own future is going to be progressively better. And the expectation that if you work hard, the future will be progressively better for, if not you, for your children, is kind of the staple of what we call modernism. I mean, the idea that the future holds out a promise means that, as I heard it said in Japan, a lot of people feel that they are in futureless times. So, um, yeah, I, 
Does that answer the question? Absolutely. It actually um, it brings us, I think, really nicely into the next couple of chapters. So even though there is this sense of futurelessness that you mention, nonetheless, as you show in several of the chapters here in the middle of the book, there is this kind of interplay between notions of home, experiences of home or homelessness, and a kind of hope. And so several of the chapters moving forward show the ways that a kind of hope emerges from what circumstances that might ordinarily or might on the surface seem to uh, create a kind of hopelessness. So let's move into some of those chapters. Now, um, in chapter three, you explore a kind of rhetoric of war that is used to think through, talk about, and respond to conditions of poverty and homelessness that have emerged in this precarious Japan that you're bringing us into in the book. There are new forms of homelessness that you show early in this chapter. So there are people who are living or taking up residence in internet or manga cafes, and there's also a kind of homelessness inside of the home. And you talk about what you call an ordinary refugeeism in 21st century Japan, where there are refugees at home. And, and this is um, part of the phenomenon of the hikikomori um, that you mentioned earlier, these youths that are withdrawing into solitary existences. Now, one of the cases, one of the spaces, um, that one of many spaces actually in the book that you take us into is a way of exploring forms of activism that are responding to and trying to engage these problems is a space called Moyai. Um, I think, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you bring us into Moyai, um, this space that's created by Yuasa Makoto um, in the context of an activist response to this. So can you talk a little bit about that? And that's perhaps a way for us to open up some of these other spaces that you've introduced early um, in our conversation that are also really fascinating. Yeah, thanks, Carla. Um, yeah, home is so interesting because the word that I heard time and time again was ibasho ganai, which means ibasho is, is, it doesn't exactly mean a real home or a literal home um, or a physical home, but it means a sense of homeliness or hominess, I guess is better. Uh, feeling comfortable at home someplace. And so when people would use this word, they um, they meant it in the sense that they didn't have that kind of psychic um, feeling of being comfortable. And so you're right. So it takes place around home. And the way that I interpreted this and, and the way that I tried to make sense of this in the book is that in part that's because there was so much loaded around the home in the 70s and the 80s, too, having your own home, literally having your own home, and being able to provide for your children, and being able to have uh, a, a heteronormative marital couple with children. I mean, that was also the, um, the way that home got defined, and that kind of home has become less possible or less secure for a lot of Japanese, I mean, a lot of Japanese still have that kind of home, but increasingly, it's not just a given that you can have that kind of home. So you're right. So Moyai is, was started by two activists, um, and the one who I worked mostly with is Yuasa Makoto, a wonderful person um, who uh, 
had been a graduate student at Tokyo University in political science and dropped out because he felt that rather than being an academic, that he should do something with real people who were suffering. And this was in the 90s, so it was right after the bubble economy had burst. Um, and at first, he worked with Iranian uh, refugees in Shibuya, which is a section of town in Tokyo. But then by uh, you know the early 2000s, he realized that homelessness was spreading, that there were more homeless people on the streets. And homelessness now was markedly different in the sense that it was more the so-called mainstream, the, the once were or would be middle class who were becoming homeless. And he was the one who noticed that the, what he called the new face of poverty today in Japan are these young people who inhabit, as you had said, internet cafes. And the word um, suggested by him and taken up by uh, a filmmaker who did a special on this was uh, Net Cafe Nanmi, Net Cafe Refugees. Um, and these are people who don't have regular work. They might work in a 7-Eleven or they're looking for day labor and also tend to be estranged from their families, their parents, or for whatever reason. And so they don't have a home and they go to net cafes because they're trying to use the internet to, to find work. And if they have enough money, they spend the night there. And you can spend the night in a net cafe, but it costs... Well, you're in Canada, so I don't know. What, you know, I don't know how much this would be, but in U.S., it would be maybe about eighteen dollars. Um, so it's not cheap, you know. So, so even the net cafe refugees would be out on the streets unless they had scored a job. And he also then started, as you had said, Moyai, which is a, a wonderful place that is, um, oh, I, I don't quite know what the best way of, of uh, characterizing it. It's kind of a drop-in center um, where every Tuesday they would have a consultancy day where staffed by volunteers, they would welcome anyone who showed up. Uh, at Moyai, and I did this a number of Tuesdays, and they will consult people about anything, about how to find a job, how to find uh, a place to live, and most importantly, how to how to try to get on welfare, because there is a welfare system in Japan. It's not great. It's not robust. It's real hard to get on it, and it's real hard to get on it unless you're elderly. And um, there would be lawyers there who would, uh, I mean, and I, meant, I write about this in the book, for example, there's a woman who came in and she was, now I can't quite remember, maybe maybe 30 years old and had lost her work and didn't know how to didn't know how to navigate the welfare system and assumed that she wasn't eligible. And the staff member at Moyai said, Oh no, 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 you're you're eligible and we will help you do this. And within an hour, hour and a half, he had taken her through all the paperwork. He introduced her to a volunteer who was going to go off with her the next day. And, and then also gave her a voucher so she could start applying for housing. So this is the kind of service that it, it, it also has a tea room where you can hang out on a Friday and have a cup of tea. But rather than being the place where you actually live, it's not a soup kitchen. It's not a, a halfway house. It's a place where they're trying to help people find the resources to get housing, get jobs, get uh, get on welfare. Because a lot of people in Japan, I think, when they feel precarious, feel totally isolated and they feel all alone. This is one um, 
as I mentioned, several kinds of space that you take us into in the book um, that are performing a kind of, I think you call it somewhere, homishness or a sort of a home-like set of functions for people who are missing some crucial aspect of home or homeness. Um, given this transformation that you're showing us to a precarious Japan. And there's an entire chapter, and I'll just mark this um, for listeners um, because we may not have a chance to talk about it in detail, but chapter six takes us into some of these other flexible open meeting places or ibasho, I think as you've mentioned a little bit earlier, um, like the Nippon Active Life Club, which are providing spaces, um, really flexible kinds of spaces for living a kind of flexible homeness in this situation of precarity. It's really interesting. Yeah, so in this larger set of uh, negotiations between home and hope, there's an entire chapter here um, that we could talk about for the next three hours. It's so fascinating. It explores different social and existential senses of home, of homelessness. You bring us into ideas um, of, among others, bachelor, bloch. Um, you take us into an, an idea of the temporality of home, of home time, um, and take us into also some really interesting sources. And I want to make sure to mark this for listeners. Um, you mentioned your ethnography at the very beginning, incorporated work with a lot of different kinds of materials. And here we see some really fascinating materials, a story um, about a homeless middle, middle school student who takes residence in a park. And also you bring us into a really interesting filmic um, interpretation of or engagement with these ideas. But what I want to ask you to talk a little bit about, though, is something that comes out of your convert, your engagement here with prosthetic sociality, as you call it, robots and dogs, hearts for robots, etc. Um, and this is the importance of something that seems to run through the entire book, and that's why I'm pulling this out. And that's the importance of touch or corporeality. There's a really strong sensory element to this book. There's a really strong element that recurs that emphasizes the importance of touch and bodies. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that, um, because it's, again, it's a way for us to talk a little bit about one of the themes that seems, at least to me, to really emerge from um, and run through the entire work itself. So touch, what's going on with touch? Yeah, thanks, Carl. Your questions are great. Um, yeah, it's a funny thing because also um, I remember having dinner one night with three middle-aged Japanese um, artists. So they're kind of um, aesthetic and thinking think about sensoriness a lot. And they were complaining how there has been such an uh, an ebbing of touch or opportunities to touch or spaces to touch and recalled their childhood. I mean, often we recall our childhoods with more nostalgia than maybe sometimes they warrant. But these three people said, oh, yes, we remember when we were children, we, we touched a lot. Our mothers would touch us. We would get in the bath with a parent. And, um, and it seems that Japan has lost that. We have uh, kind of become cold and efficient and materialistic. And this is a complaint you actually hear a lot, which certainly predate, predated the collapse of the bubble economy. Um, but 
you're right. There are ways that people also try to acquire touch or make up for the touch that maybe they they wouldn't otherwise have. And I, you're right. I I I, I try to. I try to make this book itself kind of touchy <laughs> and and I do like I like these stories about touch and so for example there was a story that I tell um, about a cat cafe uh, and cat cafes I think are all over but the one I went to was in Akihabara which is the electronics district and also the district where um, otaku the kind of geeky uh, district um, resides and this cat cafe i mean it just goes exactly to the point that you're trying to to raise here carla is a place where you pay oh i about uh 800 yen maybe about 10 us dollars and you go in they only allow about 10 people at once it's a very small intimate place full of of cats that are wandering around and a couple caregivers and you wash your hands and you sit down and maybe order a cup of tea and you interact with the cats you can uh play with them or touch them or uh talk to them and you pay for about a 45 minute set and you could come back or you could pay for two sets and it's all about touch i mean you're touching the cats but as i say in the book it's an interesting form of touch because you don't own the cats and if the cats got sick or threw up or made a mess you wouldn't be the one responsible for cleaning them up so it's touch but it's also a little bit of a sanitized touch which i also found when i was doing my previous work on tamagotchi which are these handheld little egg shaped um virtual pets you start it by turning the little contraption on and and you create a little thing and it grows and you tend to it by giving it you know icons of food and you play with it and you clean up its poop and you give it medicine if it gets sick and it's very cute but once that becomes annoying i mean you have to care give it to keep it alive once that becomes annoying you 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 can stop it or it will it will die and so that's what i call a prosthesis prosthetic sociality it's it's like something that's a prosthesis to you it extends your body it makes you have a companion a robotic companion virtual companion but it also is on your terms so i'm a little agnostic about whether this is a good or bad thing i mean i think those are kind of simplest simplistic ways of thinking about it anyway but there are these ways that you find in japan of forming other either robotic or prosthetic or um rental ways of getting the companionship that otherwise you might not be getting um but as you say there are also these other kinds of homes that are also being experimented with and uh tried with where you have a social touch sometimes a physical touch even the stop suicide event that I went went to no one's touching each other because mainly the room is i think full of people who have contemplated suicide people are walk into this place and on the stage 
are five or six people who are suicide survivors. They attempted it, but they failed, and they're here to tell us their story. Well, it's a different kind of touch. I've, I've never participated in anything like that. I found it quite extraordinary, incredibly moving. At the end of one of these, three and a half hours, mind you, we're all drinking beer. Again, quite extraordinary. At the back of the room, a woman stood up and she said, thank you so much um, to the five people on the stage. I, I really appreciate this. I'm, I'm a hihihimori. I haven't literally left my room for one year. I'm intimidated by the world. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I could never think of interacting with other human beings. I think about committing suicide all the time, but I forced myself to come tonight because you were having this. And tell me, would you please tell me, how do I get through tomorrow? How do I get through the next day? I I don't know how to do this. And she started crying. And one of the people on the stage, Amamiya Karin, who is this activist who I mentioned earlier, who is a suicide survivor herself. She said, thank you so much for coming out tonight. You were very bold and you were very courageous, but you're no longer alone. You now have us and you can email me anytime. You you have all of us. We're, we're here for you. And that's a different kind of touch that is very striking. So I see, as you say, many different experimentations, much innovativeness, much creativity, also, a lot of loneliness. Yes, around touch of multiple, you know, multiple forms. Uh, and this actually also really nicely brings us into, uh, just kind of later in the book, and really to the to end of the book. So there's a lot going on in the interim um, that we've talked a little bit about. Um, you mentioned different forms of corporeality here in the mid part of the book or the late mid part of the book surrounding not just life but also death. Um, There are really fascinating accounts of how to engage physically, materially, and also conceptually with the bodies and the dying bodies and the aging bodies of the elderly. Um, You also talk about the different forms of connectivity created in these performative and also um, physical spaces. But the book ends by bringing us into, really back into a space where we started. And this is the space of your volunteer work after the 311 disaster. It's also a space where we see the incredible importance of sensuality, of what you call a social sensuality. And this is around, um, at least again for me, um, from one idiosyncratic perspective of one reader, but around again the sensuality of mud. This is a chapter called In the Mud. And I think that the best um, way to approach this, at least from my perspective, is just to leave this in your hands. So this uh, this last chapter takes us into various kinds of work that you were doing in Japan after 3.11 that included um, work on what you um, describe here as a peace boat, cleaning up um, muddy spaces, and also work washing images or washing memory things after the disaster. What were some of the most important or striking moments of this work for you um, that you might share with us in order to really encapsulate some of the arguments that you're making and sort of bring together the arguments that you're making about precariousness in this very central space of work in Japan after 311? Yeah, um, thank you. Well, I was I was done with the book when um, when the compound disaster of March eleventh, two thousand eleven, happened. 
where this incredible earthquake, nine on the Richter scale, um, happened in northeastern Japan, triggering a tsunami that killed up close to 20,000 people. Um, and it was a disaster of unimaginable proportions and hit Japan incredibly hard. And um, it was in terms of, yes, in terms of the themes of the book, I knew that I was working on precarity and precariousness, that I could not leave it there. So I went to Japan um, in June, so it happened in March, um, to, to, and again, as with my earlier project, I had no idea how I was going to do ethnography on 311. It was pretty overwhelming and also pretty sad. Uh, by the time I got there, it was still, I mean, people were still uh, in shock and there was uh, incredible damage and uh, it felt like a crisis. Uh, but also, um, there was an incredible resurgence of energy almost immediately that people started talking about, we're, we're, we're going to we're going to survive, and we're going to pull together. And Japan, we're we're back on track. We're we're going to pull. This is this is our wake up call. If if we have been drifting, I mean, economically, yes, but we've been drifting away from each other, and there's loneliness and suicide. Well, now we're going to pull together, and we're going to be there, particularly for the people who suffered the most in in northeastern the three prefectures of northeastern Japan, but for all of us, because, of course, in uh, the Daiichi nuclear power plants, a meltdown occurred, which meant that there was some sort of nuclear radiation seeping out, possibly affecting the entire country, which meant precarious now, precariousness now was no longer something only that certain people were victimized by, that the working poor, the people who didn't have jobs, kind of meant everyone was victimized by it. So in part, this spread the precariousness to the whole country. And there was this kind of remarkable resurgence of energy and hope. There was a lot of talk about hope, a lot of talk about, not let's talk about the future, but talk about that. Um, and... And so I was in Tokyo. I uh, that that first summer there was um, everyone was trying to conserve energy. Everyone did their part. People were not turning on ACs. People were not using fans. People were trying to just kind of weather this together. But I also decided to go up to northeastern Japan, and I went up to Ishinomaki with an operation called Peace Boat. Um, and another thing, as I mentioned in the book, a lot of people were doing. Uh, I, a lot of a lot of young people went up to the northeast. Uh, older people, less so. But there was a lot of volunteerism and a lot of outpouring of uh, of um, help and support, which was quite impressive. But when I myself went on this um, this trip, I did the two night, three day trip, and it was it was kind of amazing. About sixty of us on a bus left Tokyo. We arrived first thing in the morning. We had to get all suited up because, of course, we didn't know what the threat was. So we had to put, uh, we had to cover our arms, our legs, our feet. We had helmets. We had masks on. It was already hot. This was in July. Um, and we went to the disaster zone and we shoveled mud. And you could still smell. You could, there was an odd smell. I mean, from what, I know, the toxicity, I guess. 
and it was amazing. It was incredibly hard work. We were, again, incredibly hot in all these layers of, of rubber. But you're right. It felt like the rhythms that we uh, engaged in collectively were also kind of cathartic and therapeutic. There was this incredible social sensuality. People who didn't know one another were talking to each other. We would pass the shovels back and forth. We would share our cold drinks. Um, and at the end of the day, we went to where we were sleeping. We were all just crashing on the floor of a big gym. Uh, we had to bring all of our food. I mean, it was quite quite the enterprise. And people shared their experiences. And there were people who said, you know, I, I have been really isolated. I, and I've also felt really discouraged about the, the future of Japan. And now I feel better. I don't feel so alone anymore. I Just even being a part of this makes me feel a part of something, um, which was, again, quite, quite interesting. And I felt it, too. It felt... Uh, uh, I mean, not to sentimentalize suffering, but it felt like we were sharing in something, and we were we were we were trying to move the mud. Um, I also went to Fukushima, which uh, and I went on my own to Fukushima. Fukushima, of course, had uh, radiation, and uh, no one quite knew then or now. Um, exactly what that meant and what the danger is. But I wanted to go up for a couple of days, and someone told me that Minamisoma was, was a place where not many volunteers were going to. So I took a train. I went with someone who stayed with me for part of the time. And we went to the community center, uh, or I went to the community center. She didn't go with me to volunteer. And that day, we also had to get all suited up because, of course, we had to worry about protecting ourselves from uh, radiation. But the job that they gave me that day was we went into this room where there were stacks of uh, photographs that had been recovered from the mud-infested houses that had been damaged or destroyed by the tsunami um, all over northeastern Japan, wherever the tsunami had hit. And these were destroyed pictures, and our job was to clean them. And, you know, how many of us? There were 15 of us. And we didn't have many instructions. We're all volunteers. And I just watched the guy next to me. And, you know, we took a, a toothbrush and kind of scraped off the dirt and then dabbled with a, a wipey. And some of the pictures, obviously, were unrecoverable. And it was eerie. You are looking at an image in the picture of someone. You don't know if they're alive. You don't know if they're dead. You don't know if they will ever recover the picture. So it was actually called washing memories, washing things, washing memories. And work, recovery work like this was being done all over northeastern Japan. And some of the pictures were actually outsourced to school children all over Japan where people were washing to help those people who had died and had no other uh, connection to their past except for these pictures. Um, I mean, just, again, quite extraordinary. Volunteer work of what precise? I mean, that border between life and death felt very present there. It felt very, um, very sacred. We were doing this together. For people, we don't know. We didn't know who they were. We all were strangers to one another. So sociality comes in many different forms. That wasn't exactly prosthetic sociality, but it was a very sensual sociality. Even though we all had you know, rubber gloves on and our masks, and we were doing this together 
to something that we didn't quite know what it was. It was a gesture that felt um, almost religious and certainly spiritual. It was quite, quite, quite stunning, and I was happy to be a part of it. Thank you so much, Anand. And I think this ends the book really nicely because we, in a sense, we kind of opened with liquefaction as a way of moving across borders in a context where the emphasis was on precarity. And then here, as we move through the various liquids toward the end of the book, there's another kind of liquidity that's, as you're describing it um, in your experience, and as it emerges, at least for this reader, that comes out of the sweat of work, the ocean water, the water of washing away images, the tears and the mud, but it becomes, by the end of the book, a kind of liquidity of hope um, and of moving forward um, in, in a way that I think counterposes the liquidity of um, precariousness and despair that is at the beginning of the book. So, wow, beautifully put. Thank you. <laughs> so, and there's a ton of material in the book that um, we could have talked about that, that we didn't have a chance to get to. It's an extraordinarily rich ethnography and an extraordinarily rich set of sources and stories and accounts and concepts. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Um, thanks. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, let me think. I guess maybe um, I also talk, and we have talked about hikikimori, about this phenomenon, which is kind of difficult also to wrap one's, one's head around, of young people who um, more males than females often starting about the age 12, 13, 14, when there's a lot of pressure to study for entrance exams, will retreat into a room, often at the parent's house, and not come out for a while, and sometimes not for years. So they're socially withdrawn and pretty isolated. Sometimes they'll play video games, sometimes they'll be on chat, so I guess they they might be communicating, but... From what I understand, uh, from talking to people who have had this experience, it's 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 hard. It's full of a lot of pain, and it's um, sometimes very difficult to recover from. And a couple of the stories that I, I talk about in the book are about an exceptional young man, uh, Suzuki-san, who was a hikikimori, and... Um, kind of figured out after he graduated from college remarkably to go to college and graduate that it wasn't his fault that he had been led to believe that he was a loser and um, and realized that he was a loser only if you had a certain standard of what counts as a winner and that he could change he could change what that what that was and he did and now he's a social worker he makes movies and one of the stories I think I personally like best I think it's at the end of my chapter Home and Hope is about he made a movie with three hikikimori so he doesn't define himself as hikikimori anymore but he works with hikikimori and he made a movie with three hikikimori teaching them how to work the cameras and and he made the movie mainly to get them out of their shells, to get them so that they would be doing something. And I've seen the movie, and it's um, probably not the best movie that you'll ever see. It was made very cheap, uh, 30,000 yen, like about $300. 
But it, it has a story, and what's delightful is that these three young men worked with him, and at the end of this, he decided to have a party, and he has a party at his home. So this gets back to the thing that we've been talking about, about home and other kinds of homes. And he has a home party. He has a house party for these three guys. And he said it was the goofiest thing. He said, imagine having a party with Hikikimori. I mean, everyone's awkward. They don't know how to relate with one another. They drink too much. You know, he said it's like totally bizarre. And he said, but you know what? We did it. And when I had asked him about this, it was the time I went up to Niigata and I had a feeling that he was tired and things weren't going well. And But once he told me the story, he broke into this big smile and and I thought, well, that says it all. This is another way of doing family. It's another way of doing home. And it's another way of being in the world. He's not a successful, you know, salaried man. He's never going to make a whole lot of money. And but this is really a different way of being. And um, but I was just so inspired by him. So, yeah, I guess that would be one of the stories that I would like to include. That's great. Thank you. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, I hope it's completely obvious that I think it's an absolutely fantastic and also really important book. What's next for you? Are there any projects um, that you're currently working on that you're finding especially inspiring? Uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, um, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm working on uh, death. So I'm going from precarity to death. As my partner says, wow, really upbeat topics. <laughs> so uh, my first part of my career, I was working on hostess clubs and sexuality and fantasy. And so now I'm working on precarity and death. But, um, yeah, as you had mentioned, I, I start this book about uh, a man who dies all alone. And that's a phenomenon now that you hear about in Japan called lonely death or solitary death. And I've become kind of intrigued by that, by people who die alone. But I've also become intrigued by people who, they don't necessarily embrace that, but there's a new movement in Japan to, 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 not, to not have funerals, to not worry about funerals, to, or to have a different kind of funeral. You don't expect your family to spend a lot of money burying you and having a nice funeral. Instead, you arrange ahead of time that you're going to be buried with other people who aren't even family. They're strangers. So I'm curious as to, yeah, is that something that's upbeat or is that something that's not upbeat? Or, yeah, so it's kind of an alternative alternative sociality taken to the register and the sensuality of death. I I'm think, I haven't quite figured out how or even if I'm going to pursue it. I, I Like this book, I don't mean to just do it in a downer way. I'm kind of interested if there might be something kind of upbeat about that, that there might be another way of conceptualized and ritualized death that's different from the old way. And in Japan, it always used to be your family that would have to do that for you, and it's become a big burden. Might there be another way of doing that? Or not doing that, is that an indication of something that we should that we should resist. Um, I, I'm not sure. So, yeah, the, again, not the most upbeat of topic, but I think it might be interesting. So thank you for asking. <laughs> well, thank you. It, it's really been a pleasure, and the new project sounds fascinating too. So best of luck with that, and thank you again for making time. Carla, you've been wonderful. This has been a lot of fun, and I really appreciate 
how carefully and uh, sensually you read my book. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, too. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.